Hello and welcome to the Safety Goals Podcast with Justin Torres and Charlie Wund, presented by Injury. This is episode 10 with our special guest, Jerry Stevens. Justin, uh, having athletic trainers in the public school, high schools, uh, districts in the United States has been a struggle for us over the last couple of decades. Uh, Jerry Stevens today has developed a, a model coming out of Jacksonville uh, with the Duval County School District that is phenomenal and groundbreaking, one that model could be modeled uh, across the country. So really exciting, really great information for those looking to improve sports safety at the high school level and just an overall uh, great guy. So real excited to have a conversation. Yeah, Charlie, I mean, as a former athlete, I love getting to talk to an athletic trainer because one, I spent so much time with them already. Um, but Jerry truly is a special talent. He's been doing this for upwards of 40 years uh, and truly doesn't seem like he's going to stop anytime soon. So I want to get into our conversation with him so you guys can hear all of the interesting tidbits that he had to give us. So without further ado, let's get into the show. Okay, so we have Jerry Stevens of Duval County Schools with us. Jerry, it's a pleasure to have you. We've been talking over email for about two weeks, and uh, it's great to get to sit in front of you uh, face-to-face, even if it's over Zoom. But you have a really, really interesting outlook on what it's like to run athletic training groups and just what an athletic trainer needs to be in today's world. So one, I was hoping you could give our listeners just a bit of background on how you got to where you are today, and what kind of drove your passion for sports. Okay, uh, well, uh, thanks for having me and for this opportunity as well. And probably like a lot of athletic trainers or people that are in athletic departments you know, around the world, um, former athlete, um, never really much past the high school level, but always enjoyed being around that environment. And um, when I went to the University of Florida back in the 80s, it wasn't my intent to be an athletic trainer because there wasn't much known about the profession, but uh, I was thinking of coaching. I was thinking of things just to be involved. And, and the person that I met with on campus just suggested this new applied careers in athletic training. So that got me started in that environment. And uh, looking back from that point, we didn't have anybody like that in our high school. You know, we, we had a, a senior student that acted as the equipment manager and, maybe had taken a Kramer course that they gave back then and knew how to tape an ankle or a wrist, but really had no medical uh, people on the sideline, no healthcare provider. And so uh, it was really a, a growing opportunity that I saw there. And um, when I came out of college, uh, my first job was in the United States Football League, not the one that you see today, but the one that was around back in the mid eighties and, uh, you know, worked in that, environment until that league went away uh, and then became a what we call it a clinical outreach athletic trainer. I worked for a corporation and would go and take care of a high school. That kind of just continued to evolve. That was the primary model in Duval County. I, I was raised here. I grew up here and went to high school here. And um, so we didn't have full-time athletic trainers, full-time healthcare provider for our student athletes. And we started that discussion in the late 80s, early 90s, and it took until 20, where are we at now? Probably 2017 uh, before we were able to get enough uh, buy-in by the district and community partners uh, in the area to start a a way to implement athletic trainers uh, in full-time into our 17 public high schools. And then once we got to uh, what we consider like a critical mass where there were 12 full-time employed, 
we had put in the mix the position of a superintendent or a director of sports medicine or athletic training. One of the things over the years that I would hear from my colleagues is that, you know, regardless of the level, whether they're at the high school all the way up to the professional level, they, they're usually working under the auspices of a, a, a principal or an athletic director, a non-medical professional that's, that's doing their performance evaluations and holding them accountable for what they're supposed to do, but don't really understand all the things that they're supposed to do. So we, uh, we when I say we, there's a lot of people involved in this, not the Jerry Stevens show, but um, we uh, continued to work forward and then created this additional. So we have 17 full-time athletic trainers and I'm the 18th myself as a licensed athletic trainer uh, that supervises them, mentors them because many of them have uh, you know much less years of experience and have come from different backgrounds and then uh, try to hold everything together. Uh, other past experiences that tie into this is um, a lot of our colleagues in other school districts are, say they have 10 schools in their school district, they're 10 individuals. Mm -hmm. I wanted to bring it, we're, we're 17, we're a family, we work with each other, we work collaboratively because we play each other in many of our events on Friday nights or Tuesday afternoons or Saturdays. So we need to be able to work together and support each other. And, um, and as being, being non-educators, we are part of a teacher's union or a employee union of any kind. So so we have to work together to, to make our voice a bit louder and to continue to push for the things that we need to, to grow uh, and improve in our district. You know, Jerry, it's crazy. Uh, Duval County's no slouch, right? I mean, we've got a lot of professional athletes now we see coming out of there. The athletic program in that region, especially, in, you know, just in Florida in general, that, that's, a, that's a hotbed, I would say. You see a lot of pros come out of there. And to think that the, uh, an athletic trainer, you know, the medical professional who was designed or trained to be working with these athletes, that it took you that long to have to convince everybody, this is such an identity for who we are in this district, that, you know, we want to protect that. And we want to make sure that these kids have those pathways. Um, and, it, and it's crazy to think about that. But you touched on something that I don't think I've ever really heard out loud before. Um, that I think is a, a, a maybe a, a source of where some of that education or lack of understanding comes from is that typically athletic trainers are not supervised by a medical professional. And there's a gap in an understanding of their role uh, because I, you know, I was a former athletic director, right? I, I didn't know, I mean, I knew who an athletic trainer was, but it was kind of the idea of, oh no, we've got an athletic trainer. They can take care of all that stuff. And it kind of pushes that into that role. Can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, you know, you're, you're outlining how you organize the organization and how you're structuring things as this team with you as a leader and a mentor to these younger folks coming in in this profession. And I think that's unique. Um, but I think the importance of understanding the role and not just thinking that one person is going to take care of a thousand student athletes during the course of a school year, you know, there has to be this community. Can you expand on that a little bit and, and what you've seen over the years? Sure, and, and you, you did hit on that. I mean, going you know going through college and you know our mentors that brought us up through that you know were kind of like a you know master of all or jack of all trades, master of none type thing. And one of the things that you're right, you know, some of our schools uh, are very big 
classification high schools, 800 to 1,000 student athletes with every sport at the JV varsity level that can be offered in our state. We have some that aren't quite as, as busy, but still are very strong in certain sports. So they always have long seasons and overlapping seasons. And so it's, it's important, um, not that, to be clear, it's not that the uh, athletic trainer at one school is gonna cover for the athletic trainer at another. That does happen from time to time if that athletic trainer has nothing going on on their campus, they'll fill in with each other or I will fill in in those right. spots. But, um, you know, to your point, it's, it's very easy. I'm not going to dance around it, but turnover rates can be very high. Burnout can be very high because of all those demands. And um, we, that, that support is what is very important. Uh, you know, knowing that you're not there by yourself uh, because, you know, some of that is, and, and what I try to do is not just let them waller in any, any of their pity parties or anything like that, you know, when things get a little bit tougher, mm -hmm. but um, what we, we learn from each other. So when uh, one of my athletic trainers has a transport with uh, EMS, we do a debrief as a group, we meet monthly and we talk about those things and we learn how we can improve on that. So then when it happens at another school, you know, we, we've kind of got some experience with that. Um, so we, we, we build on each other's experience and what we're all strong at. And then, and that makes our whole program stronger because you made the point there that, you know, you were surprised that we didn't already have things like this as big of a programs as, as we right. have in athletics and, there's a huge cultural and educational change that has to take place. I've been with the district. I'm finishing up my fourth year. Mm -hmm. We haven't had full, this will be this, the, the third year that we've had all full-time athletic trainers. So we still have coaches and athletic directors that aren't used to having this person even on their campus to begin with. Yeah. Okay. And so a lot of them, like you said, not exactly sure what they can and can't do. In Florida, and it should this be should be this way nas uh, nationally with athletic trainers is we operate under the direction of a physician. Mm -hmm. Now the schools don't have physicians on campus. We have volunteer team physicians that work with us, and annually we meet as a group. And for if it was me, for example, my volunteer physician and I will get together and we go through an annual contract together. And he or she can spell out if he, if he or she is comfortable with me. Uh, reducing joints or managing certain types of injuries, we spell those things out and how okay. we're going to communicate and how we're going to notify. Okay. That person is not even affiliated with the school district, but by law, by the state of Florida law, our licensure law and our national certification, we need to have that relationship. In uh, past roles that I've had with our state association, uh, I was part of that legislative process, that licensure process to create that and put those things into effect. I currently sit on our Florida Board of Athletic Training, so we govern all the licensed athletic trainers within our state and making sure that they are following those things. So sometimes what we run into is coaches and, and athletic directors and administrators want the athletic trainer to do certain things that legally we cannot do. Okay. Where is the school in this? Do you ever have an athletic trainer or sorry, excuse me, do you ever have an athletic director or coaches sit in on those meetings with the, the, the physicians that you were explaining? Um, they have, they have that opportunity to do that. They also, for example, uh, Tammy Talley is our, our, our school district, our county has a district athletic director. So 
she's a similar position with me, but over the, she has 42 athletic directors under her because of middle school and high school. Um, and so she has monthly meetings with, with the high school athletic directors. And I present to them monthly on youth safety and sports medicine issues. So we discuss those things at that time. To be honest, the athletic director uh, and the athletic trainers still have a relationship. So my athletic trainers should be able to explain to the athletic director what their roles are. And then I'm the fallback. So I, I get calls from both sides, you know, and I get caught in the middle of some of this. And uh, a good example is uh, if a parent complains to the district, they don't think their child was treated properly by the athletic trainer. I'll sit at the table with those parents all the people involved, the athletic director, the principal of that school. And my role is I look at that and say, well, the athletic trainer acted within their scope of practice. Mm -hmm. If you didn't like the way that, you know, their bedside manner, you didn't like, that's something we have to work on from a different perspective. But my job is to make sure those athletic trainers are practicing within the law and within their license. So an athletic director is more than welcome to be in on that meeting between the physician and the athletic trainer. Uh, most of them opt to not be involved with that because they really can't have much input because it's purely from a healthcare provider standpoint. Sure. But we, throughout the year, they, a lot, they, they the athletic directors uh, know I'm their resource. Same with the middle school. They have no athletic trainers at the middle school level here, but I'm their sports medicine resource. And they can always send questions. I can help them design their emergency action plans and those types of things, because they don't have an athletic trainer on campus to do that. And so to answer your question, they're all more than welcome. Most of them are so busy with everything else, because now's the time that we start doing those or, you know, for the next year, and they're busy mm -hmm. getting ready with football and, and fall sports starting. And fortunately, you know, our, our each year that we make another year uh, helps to build that culture and that relationship. And they understand the athletic trainer, same with the coaches, the athletic trainers are there to protect their livelihood, the, the coaches and ADs, to keep them out of trouble. And of course, paramount is the safety of the kids. And yeah, it seems like just a wonderful opportunity for education for that, you know, for the, in, in for the, an athletic director, non-medical professional administrator, to be able to sit in on a meeting like that and just learn more about it, even if they can't have it, you know, they shouldn't probably right. have any input, but they're there and they're helping that understanding, but it is a cultural shift and it takes time. And I, we understand that, yeah. Not many youth sports administrators began their careers with the dream of negotiating insurance rates. Most have the love and passion for the game and saw it as a way to inspire the next generation of youth athletes. However, nowadays insurance can be the single greatest cost for a youth sports organization. At American Sports Insurance Services, we've done the work for you and created the single most comprehensive youth sports insurance program on the market. We did it by aggregating the largest youth sports injury database in the world. Let us do the heavy lifting and represent you for all your risk management needs. For more information or to get a quote, visit www.getamsys.com. That's www.getamsys.com. Now, Jerry, you kind of mentioned it there at the end that ultimately the relationship has gotten better year in and year out. Um, is there anything that was kind of a struggle and a hurdle that you recognized that most groups will come and face when having ATs around constantly and having it be this new kind of format. Because I think what you guys do at Duval 
having athletic trainers pretty much everywhere is what should be going on across America. And since that's not the case, that adjustment will have to be made by the majority of schools. So if you could kind of give some tips and tricks of what the biggest problem you saw or biggest hurdle in the initial stages might have been. A lot of things that we did brought us to the point where we are now, obviously. And as I mentioned before, as an outreach athletic trainer, you know, I would work in a clinic and see patients in the morning, and then I would go out to a high school and be the athletic trainer in the afternoon. We almost called it a have bag, will travel type of approach. And there are pitfalls that occur with that because that individual is not part of the school system. So they don't have to listen to what I say when I'm in that role, right? And so we wanted to take the pitfalls out of that and, 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 and learning from that model um, the other thing that ha would happen with that model is only certain schools would get an outreach athletic trainer. And those are schools that had good payer mixes. They had good insurances. No one wanted to do the inner city schools because the hospital or clinic they worked with maybe didn't accept Medicaid, you know, or didn't accept the insurances. And so the reasoning behind it was to generate revenue or business for the overseeing business. I wanted to take that. We wanted to take that out of the mix to where the focus is going to be purely with those kids on your campus. You know, um, you don't have to wear multiple hats. So when we were, you know, looking at those types of things, we were trying to fill those gaps and then be able to create a, a continuity of care between the school family, the school community, the parents, everybody involved with that student athlete's time at that school over the four years. And so some things that, uh, we learned in, in the way that our athletic trainers ended up in the system was through a program we call uh, Project 17. And we had the 17 athletic trainers and we brought them in in cohorts. So the first wave was five athletic trainers. They would get a master's in kinesiology from Jacksonville University, one of our local universities here and do a great, they were already licensed athletic trainers. They were just gonna get a graduate assistantship get paid some money to do it. And if you think about it, it's a two-year job interview. And at the end of two years, they would have the job. It gave the, the school district two years to budget appropriately for those positions. And then the next time we brought on two, then we brought on four, you know, until we got our full 17. The pitfalls we ran into there is, and, and Charlie, going back to your question with involving the athletic director, is that um, the schools didn't determine which athletic trainers they got. That was done by us and the community uh, community partners that were supporting the program. We did our best to pair the cohorts up with the personalities of the school. And mm -hmm. so that way we could get a good mix. We didn't always get that. And so uh, sometimes coaches and athletic directors or parents made it very hard on those athletic trainers. And so we had some that would just ch chose not to stay on after their two years. Hey, they got a master's, you know, they got paid a little bit, they got some great experience, but then we had to fill that position and, and, and go, go forward from there. Some of the challenges we would run into is uh, when it would come to lightning is a big one. Co coaches, especially football coaches hate lightning because, you know, we follow the NFHS and NCAA, we follow those rules, and if it's 10 miles, we're starting to go in. And some of them want to work into two miles. Some of them, as long as it's not hitting the stadium, we're going to stay out here, right? Right. So we had to work around that and find ways to uh, communicate that. And one of the things that we were able to do is we made it part of school board policy. 
Therefore, as an employee of the district, they couldn't just tell our athletic trainer to go pound sand because now they could lose their job. Uh, you know, so we've, we've been able to do that, those types of things uh, and strengthen the program. Now that sounds good, but we still have a very long way to go because Charlie, as you mentioned earlier, we still only have one athletic trainer at each school. Mm-hmm. And so uh, there's still a lot of, uh, they, they're 10 month employees and they work from, you know, they start before everybody else does. And then they maybe finish up a little before graduation, but, you know, they run through holidays, they run through um, weather days, planning days, because coaches love to practice as much as they can and nothing wrong with that. And they know our athletic trainers know what they were getting into. So uh, those are some of the pitfalls there. Um, also, with connection to my position, principals run their schools. Principals normally do the hiring and firing and, and uh, work-related decisions for all the employees on their campus. I'm the person that hires and fires these, these individuals. And so sometimes the principal says, well, I didn't hire you. I don't care about you. You know, you're not really, yeah, you're kind of in my org, you know, my organizational chart, you know, but you're not really even in my budget because the money comes to me, but it comes from a different area. Their athletic trainers are district-based employees versus a school-based employee. That's the easiest way to put it. Yeah. So when we we are um, advertising for a new position, uh, it's a generic posting. It's not for a particular school and we can move those athletic trainers around should we need to. And uh, the district leans on my expertise there to make sure. And we don't want to do that because it goes back to the continuity of care that we talked about earlier. Sports are in full swing 24 seven, which means athletes are bound to get injured. Injure free is a software platform used by youth sport organizations and schools that was developed to help coaches, parents, and administrators communicate injuries that occur and ensure a safe return to play. These sports safety networks are essential for sports teams working to provide the safest possible environment for their families. For more information or to schedule a demo, please visit www.injurefree.com. That's www.injurefree.com. Interesting too. I mean, a lot of conversation about um, the culture uh, and the education at all levels, and really the separation between it. I, we, we talk about it sometimes as a shift change too, when you talk about medical care in the school systems, but you've got your daytime care, and then you've got your afternoon evening care, you know, and there's sometimes there's overlap and sometimes there isn't, but there really is two different operations within an educational system where the, the athletic department is running a secondary level of operations that sometimes doesn't mesh or, you know, coordinate with what's going on on the daytime care. And, um, you know, here still, you've got administrators that uh, have this, a lack of understanding of how important the athletic trainers can be for these students and the coaches and the district. But I think from a public school standpoint, I mean, the, it's unique to me um, uh, to hear the hiring of athletic trainers at the district level. And I think that's a, an incredible way for you to, to establish uh, the importance, but also the jurisdiction, the lines of jurisdiction around governance and, and, you know, like you're talking about with the employees. Do you see that often in other public school districts or is that unique to the 17 program? I can only speak for Florida. So what right. I can see is that 
kind of a ripple effect maybe happening in the senses we were kind of the first to, to attempt to do it this way and um orange county which is a large county just south of us where you know disney and all that central florida um they have te technically or typically had the teacher that was also an athletic trainer Mm -hmm, right. right. So they would get a teaching salary. They would teach three, four classes a day, then get an additional supplement, annual supplement to be the athletic trainer. And they would have two to three of those people on campus and they would help each other out. Uh, what they did this year uh, will take effect 23, 24 athletic year is they uh, made one of those individuals solely an athletic trainer, head athletic trainer that's over the sports medicine program for that school. The other two are still you know, teacher athletic trainers that receive a supplement. So you have just those responsibilities of being an athletic trainer for that one individual, which I think is, is, is really necessary uh, to do that. Our athletic trainers don't report to campus until 12 o'clock. Right. School gets out at 2.30. And then you're there through the end of the athletic day, you know, so versus a teacher athletic trainer is going to show up when school starts, they're going to get there at 6.30, and then they're going to be there until the end of the athletic day, just like you as an athletic director would be required to do. It makes it a very yeah. long, very long day. So those types of things, uh, I think, are starting to take effect throughout the state. Uh, our neighbor to just the south, St. John's County, has had full-time athletic trainers in their schools for a number of years as well. And they've reached out to us to try to figure out how they can create the position that I sit in so that they can pull because. They're now at, uh, I think they're nine high schools now. They're continuing mm -hmm. to grow. It's a fast growing county to the south of us. Um, so then in Dade County, they have had full-time non-instructional athletic trainers for a long time, um, but they've kind of stayed to themselves. I really can't speak a lot for how they operate down there. I hope I don't get in, you know, say things that I shouldn't say, but no worries. One of the one of the challenging pitfalls that we do run into, and when you talk about coding, you know, the Department of Education has their red book, I think is what it's called here in the state of Florida anyway. And so for a teacher, you'll have a certain position code. And, you know, for this, you'll right. have a certain, you know, for these different things. We have no position because we're not an educator. We have no position code that goes along with that. So that's what makes it easier to be a district employee. Uh, our friends in St. John's County they're listed as associate athletic directors. So they use that code in the red book to, to justify where they put them in the payroll side and on the HR side. That's where we run into some challenges is that we talked about uh, the organic aspect of being on campus and the coaches and the athletic directors and the principal, but HR is still figuring out. And that's where I spend a lot of my time squeaking the wheel is HR doesn't know that athletic trainers is tough to punch a clock, you know, uh, right. a, a Friday, just with, just with Friday night football, we're going to have a 10 or 11 hour day, you know, or a weekend wrestling tournament or basketball tournament. And so we're not punching in and out. Uh, and we don't have things like flex time and, and stuff to offset. So we have to find ways to work creatively, you know, and they don't have a specific calendar that fits the calendar for us. So I'm a 12 month employee, so it doesn't really affect, but for the athletic trainers, it does create some of those challenges that we still need to continue to work on. And I'm thankful that we have people in HR that uh, also are willing to sit down and, and see what we can do because we're just an infant program. We're a baby, you know, uh, brand new program. 
and teachers and paras and UOPD, all the different coded other employees of the district have been around for a long time and have been able to work through those. That's fascinating. I got to ask a question. So what do you think is more likely to happen? Uh, that ultimately the State Department of Education in Florida changes their HR coding systems to include athletic trainers and conform to you know the, the necessary uh, timelines or a separate entity is formed that only governs athletics and school sports become a completely different operation. Which one do you think, uh, which path do you think is more likely to happen in the next, you know, say 10 years or so? I would say from, from the lenses that I look through and working, uh, you know, through the Department of Health, uh, through the Florida Board of Athletic Training and our state membership of, of Athletic Training Association of Florida, we would probably rather try to get a code put in. Oh yeah. You know, to create because most schools do have a school nurse. They do have physical therapy, speech, and occupational therapy. Right. Many of those are contracted in, uh, but administratively they do have supervisors and directors that oversee them, just like that I do. So there may be some ways, but. As, as our title has confused people since we began in 1950 as athletic trainers, that term athletic, they want to always house you under athletics versus right. under the healthcare arm of, of those things. So, uh, so we as a profession have bantered back and forth on the yeah. nomenclature of our profession, uh, but we can't get rid of, that's where we started, athletics, you know, I mean, and, and that's where our bread and butter is. So, the Florida High School Athletic Association, who governs most of the sports that high schools have and that are member schools in the state, just with my limited exposure, and we work with them very closely because all of our physical forms and consent forms, anything that's healthcare related, we work with them. Uh, gentleman uh, Bob Sefcheck, who I work real closely with here in Jacksonville, is on their sports medicine advisory committee, and they're working always to make sure that we have the right forms to deal with. But just again, this is just my opinion. I don't think that they would want to take us on to have a, you know, to manage or govern from a coding standpoint, you know, right. uh, but we have made some inroads with them and they do promote our profession a lot more to their member, uh, you know, member schools. And as Justin has mentioned earlier, you know, I think nationally, roughly a third of the high schools have no athletic trainers. And that's pretty yeah. true for what we have here in Florida. Yeah, that's the unfortunate piece, right? Is that we see uh, what it is from um, our friends up at UConn there in the Atlas program with Corey Stringer. They mm -hmm. do the, the data analysis and we see, you know, it's roughly 50% have, you know, uh, well, let's see, we've got about 60% have access to an athletic trainer, but really it's only about 30 or 40% have full-time access. Right. And we are seeing a lot of the outreach programs and a lot of the blends that you're talking about. It's just, it just, it seems to me, you know, again, I guess it's because we work in this field, I guess, so much, and we talk to so many different people who are, you know, working in the same manners to to improve sports safety. But it's just, it's un. I was doing the math the other day. I mean, it's 20 years since the NFL litigation and concussions in 2004. It's crazy, and we're still making these inroads. The 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 education and the adaptation and the culture around safety in sports at the education departments. I mean, it, it, it's just mind boggling that we're still having to convince people that this is what's necessary and, and this should have been done years ago. But it's great to see that you guys are making that progress. You're setting the tone, setting the bar, 
um, and others are following, which is tremendous because I think that's the type of leadership that we need from a state by state basis. It's going to ultimately get to that change, hopefully. And Charlie, I mean, you, even you, Charlie, have you seen a really big change since your time once you left as an athletic director to now of whether or not the athletic training profession seems to be more accepted, more understood how important it is? Because when you were an athletic director, it may not have been the biggest key piece of information because it's not always known until there's a problem. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think definitely, I mean, the, if there's no doubt that the, um, the media and the lens on safety and sports has changed. Um, and therefore there, everybody at least knows, okay, yeah, we definitely have to do this. Everybody saw DeMar Hamlin. Everybody has heard about the child abuse cases that we see coming out of some of the universities and things on that nature. I mean, there's, a focus in sports safety now that there hasn't been. And that's one thing, Jerry, we've, we've, we've talked with other guests and, and asked them that we said, you know, where did, where did safety first go? Where was that mindset? Why, why, you know, right. what happened to it? And a lot of people's responses is it was never there. It was rub some dirt on it and get back in. There was no oversight. Um, and so we're actually getting into that phase now. Um, so I think Justin, I mean, I, I, it's clear that people are aware um, I think this is probably one of the struggles, you know, Jerry, you're, you're going to be able to speak more than this, but in a public school setting, it's not easy. Education doesn't have funding. <laughs> I mean, you know, their schools don't have money. Uh, and, and when we add, ask schools to do more with, with, without any additional funding, and often we take away their funding, depending on where the economy is, um, then, you know, their, their hands are tied. And that means that they're going to have to fire an English teacher to bring on an athletic trainer. The programs like that, that Jerry's created um, and this AT17 program is unique in the fact that I think it separates a lot of this oversight and funding, right, Jerry? I mean, from different places and sources. So getting creative and getting unique, I think, is is the way we have to go. This is a tremendous model. Um, I think everybody wants to do more. I just don't think they know how to do it. And I think that's why this is so important to share this message about what the guy, these guys are doing down in Jacksonville, because it, it's working, right, Jerry? I mean, it's been, you said about four years now? Yeah, so, you know, that's, and, and you, you hit on it really, I mean, our community partnerships is what sustains us. Yeah. You know, I mean, yes, we're, we're a big district. Jacksonville's a large city, big county. So, you know, the, the, the tax dollars, property taxes and all that are, are pretty good, you know, to help right. kind of sustain that. But athletics in general, you know, we do you mentioned education struggles financially and athletics does as well. And, you know, and I came on in, when I started this position was November 19th, 2019. Well, what happened in the spring of 2020? Yeah. Right? Down the whole world. So yeah. I have I have athletic trainers that are scared that their job is going to disappear. Are we going to have athletics again? Are we going to have all these types of things? I knew we would get through that, but we're still struggling financially because of the time, you know, that, you know, can't have games, can't do this, can't do that. And we lose some of the natural revenue sources that each school would have for their athletic programs. Our goal and my, and, and, and my goal especially is to not have the athletic trainer as a financial drain on the athletic program. Mm -hmm. So again, we talk about ways that we can fundraise and ways that we can be self-sufficient and sustained. Um, but we've got to have athletic tape. We've got, we need to have AEDs. We need to have certain types of equipment uh, to really, uh, from the background that I came from, and because of the challenges that I saw when I was an out outreach athletic trainer, 
I want our athletic trainers to be able to provide as many services as they can for that student athlete if they can't afford to go to a physical therapy clinic yeah. for rehab. So yeah. if we can take care of that ankle and we can save that family some money, we can do a good job. So we go to our community partners and we have a real big one in the Jacksonville Jaguars, you know, uh, our NFL affiliate here. And then we have two universities in UNF and Jacksonville University that help us. And then uh, a couple of our hospital, big hospital systems have also bought in and all that's Jacksonville sports medicine. I know you'll be, I think, doing one of these with Bob Sepchik in the future. And I'll let him talk about that side of it. But we serve on that board and, and it's really important because they have, they generate funding for us to help us sustain the athletic side, uh, athletic training side, so that we are not a drain. So they can, the athlete, ADs can still pay for uh, officials, can still pay for bus transportation, can still pay the ticket taker, you know, all those types of things that are part of putting on a, an athletic event. One thing I do express because sometimes there's frustration in, things don't seem to move fast enough. As athletic trainers, we're mm -hmm. problem solvers. You know, we, we prepare, we anticipate, and then we perform and, and we respond to certain situations. School districts don't move that way. And so they're, they're much bigger entities and they take a long way to kind of get things going. And so a lot of times there's a frustration on my, my athletic trainer's side of it, me as well. And I always explain to them that they're, the kids are here for an educational experience. They're there to get an education. Athletics is our little piece of the pie that helps them have a complete educational experience. And because we see things through the athletic lens, you know, those principles are focused on test scores and attendance and, and those types of things. And they may not want to jump the first time you have an issue. So we have to learn to, to, to deal with those things as well. But if it wasn't for those community partners and we still have our inner city schools that struggle. One of the most important things, and you mentioned Corey Stringer uh, Institute earlier, you know, uh, in Florida, we have the Zachary Martin Act, which is, you know, requires school zones and all that. Well, school district doesn't buy ice machines. They don't service ice machines. You know, we have to find a way to do those things and uh, through some fundraising and massaging of funds elsewhere to make sure that all of our schools have an ice machine that can produce enough ice so that we can make sure we have that cool tub ready to go because we're going to use that cold tub probably out of a 10 month athletic year. We're probably going to use it seven or eight months, you know, yeah. uh, from time to time. So, you know, and like you said, safety first is a great talking point, but when you pull back the curtain, yeah, they've already checked that box. They've moved on. We've got a, we got a lot more work we need to still do. And, and, and that's what I'm, we're still doing here. I was going to say the public private partnerships in those respects. I mean, it's, it's an entrepreneurial spirit. I mean, you're hustling, trying to put these pieces together and the sustainability of these types of programs in a public school district are, are, are the key. I mean, you also talked about the, the waxing and the weaning of, of uh, to the two-year program and allowing the schools to work that budget in. I mean, it's so important to have that forward-thinking mentality in the public school setting because that is, I mean, that's where they're thinking. That's where their budgets are. We don't know how much money we're going to get from the state next year, so on and right. so forth. And then they redraw the lines. And so, and then, and then you're left filling in the cracks. How do you know, where do we need to go? And how do we, these are the things that are missing that are off the school budget. And there's so much that goes into that. Um, but it, it really, you know, the, it again speaks to the importance of the, the leadership who understands the medical field and very specifically around athletics in the athletic training field. I mean, it feels, it feels like the program you set up from a leadership perspective is really the key to success 
having those folks who can advocate at the right levels within all of these different discussions seems to be one of the keys uh, to why you guys are, are, are having such a success that you are. So that's great. I mean, it's just super exciting to hear all the details. And so, Jerry, one thing that I love is that when I get to do these interviews and recordings, I get to basically do all this research on our guests and find out cool tidbits of information. And one thing I really found fascinating is that you are part of the uh, Hall of Fame for the Athletic Trainers of Florida. And that is something that you only get by having 20 years of experience and 20 minimum years of service. So one, thank you for giving all your time and effort to keep athletes safe continuing to push them on their journeys because as an athlete who got injured before and couldn't continue I know that it is impossible to get over a bad injury so you guys saving them really really helps a lot um obviously 20 years of service comes with a couple things one you have to get your certifications uh and licensing but when people will look you up they're going to see Jerry Stevens ATC and LAT. Um, could you go into the differences between being an ATC versus an LAT and how you acquire those different titles respectively? Okay. So um, the ATC is the National Athletic Trainers Association Board of Certification. Um, that's the, the credentials you get. Uh, you graduate, it's, it's a, it's a, I'm just going to say the way it is today because it's a lot different. When I was in school, there were no curriculum programs or approved programs um so today everyone that, that graduates will have a master's in athletic training from a katie approved and that's the council on athletic uh, something or other I, I i i'm not sure i'm not an educator from that standpoint but um but they're the ones that make sure that if whether you go to school at university of north florida or university of florida you're learning the same curriculum most healthcare professions have that you know medical doctors pts if you go to those programs you graduate from that institution, and then uh, you're you're eligible to sit for a certification exam. It's a national exam that uh, when I took it had it wasn't all it wasn't all computerized back then, but it had a 70% failure rate. I, I believe the, the failure rate is is improved over the years because now there's you know there it's a it's a computerized program just like most of the other healthcare providers are, uh, and so. Uh, but you, you pass that. Then if you choose to come to Florida, then you have to apply for your license. And if you meet the standards of the Board of Certification for National Athletic Trainers Association, then you just pay your fee and, and you can get your license uh, for the state of Florida. If you're going to go to Georgia, you follow their processes you know, for their licensure. And right now, 49 of the 50 states have some type of state regulation. California being the one state that does not, our biggest state, uh, that when I was on dealing with the uh, governmental affairs back in the day, uh, that was one that we were always, and we still are trying to get over the humps so that yep. we have all 50. Yep. Uh, the, the licensure uh, in Florida, you know, allows us to practice. So you may see some people in Florida that have ATC, but they don't have the LAT. Uh, they're still a certified athletic trainer, but you're not going to see them practicing as an athletic trainer. So you cannot practice in the state without both credentials. You can't have one without the other. Um, and so the way that when we wrote our legislation and we, and we put it into effect, which it was in 1995, um, and started getting that licensure process, we did not want to have a second licensure exam. We didn't want to put any more undue stress. 
on, on the applicants. So we follow the board of certification or its successors, how the law reads on down the line. So as long as you maintain your continuing education, which we have to do uh, for your, your, your board of certification uh, requirements, then you meet your, your, light, your board of athletic training in Florida or your licensure requirements, even though they're different numbers. So just like any healthcare provider, uh, the athletic trainer has to have a, a minimum of 50 continuing education credits in a two year period. So this year coming up in December 31st, all athletic trainers in the nation will be submitting their minimum of 50 continuing education units. So I was just at our Athletic Trainer Association of Florida meeting this past weekend where we were getting instructed and sitting in different speakers uh, on different topics, different breakouts, different labs, and we get a certain percentage of educational credit on that. They have to be approved by the Board of Certification in order to count. So I can't just go to XYZ, you know, uh, dry needling conference and count that, you know, and then if I'm in good standing with the BOC, then I just upload that card when it's next year, when it's time to do my licensure requirements, because state of Florida only requires 12 a year or 24 in a biannual, biannual period. And, uh, and then it, that and our CPR uh, certification and uh, medical records and different things like that, that the state requires that we do. So in a nutshell, that's what those are, but you may go to another state and they like South Carolina, I think just has certification. So they have an additional, uh, Kentucky, I think might have just registrations. They have different um, types of letters they may have after their name, but they all should have that ATC. And then you have Texas that has their own, they have their own organization. So you have athletic trainers that are under the NATA and you have some that are under the state of Texas. And, you know, it's a little bit of a different thing there. Perfect. Well, I mean, whether it's giving 20 years of service to the athletic training profession or going and getting your certifications in general, the one thing it definitely does take is a lot of experience. And that's the next question I have for you is that you have to have learned a lot of things in both your training to become an athletic trainer and since then leading athletic trainers uh, as part of Duval County Schools. Is there one thing that you found that was very important that you continue to impart on all ATs you find, whether they're in your system or not, as you find that it's just such a helpful piece of information? You ready for this? I'm ready. Open communication. If you don't, if you don't communicate in a way that people can understand, when, when I was a preceptor, which we have when you're going through the programs, you're like their mentor while the students are there. One of the little things I would play on them is, is how do I communicate with an athletic director, a principal, a coach, and, a, and an upset parent? Because you can't, you want to say the same message, but you've got to say it four or five different ways so that the, you're getting to the person. So communication uh, is, is, is just what paramount. A lot of times we tend to just, you know, keep everything in. And to let you know, I'm, I, I've got more than 20 years experience. I've got almost 40 years experience, but of the athletic trainers that, that are under my purview, the oldest one might be mid thirties. So I've got about 30 years on all of them. And you know how, Justin, you're a young guy. You look like a young guy. Uh, Thank you. Their form of communication is what? They're on the phone, sending a We're text. texting, we're not using our emails. Exactly, and emails. And it's like when I, I said, those are your digital foot fingerprints, but I would like you to still have face-to-face -face interaction because you can read that person and uh, some of it is not stuff that you learn in school. Some of it we just happen to be born with maybe, 
but um, the foundations are going to be built in school and just like healthcare, it healthcare is an art. Uh, I use the example a lot of um, taping an ankle. We learned the basics of the, the give me the basket weave, you know, but I might need to tape your ankle different than your ankle, you know, Justin and, and Charlie, your, your yeah. ankles may have different needs and I can't just put the same generic thing on there. And we, we don't want to approach our families and our communities with that same generic approach. So modify your communication so that you're individualizing it to the needs of that particular situation. That's a great analogy. I like that analogy. You know, it's, it seems like, um, you know, no matter what you're doing in an athletics, uh, as much as AI is coming on and as much as technology plays a role, it's still about people. It's the human aspect of it all. And that's what makes sports so amazing, I think, in my opinion. I mean, one of the reasons why it impacted my life so much, it doesn't matter, you know, where you were born, doesn't matter who your daddy was, you know, you step onto a field and you're just a jersey number and, or, and, a, and a, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever team or mascot you represent. And it's an opportunity for individuals to set themselves apart um, and be an individual, but a person. And that personal communication that you're talking about is such an important part that I think a lot of folks forget, or it's, you know, removing itself from society with, you know, technology allows us to connect and cross the country right now, you know, in, in, in real time. So, uh, but it's so important. And, and when you're talking about uh, an athlete who's injured, uh, they can't do what they love. Their parents are concerned about their future. The coach is upset because it's the star player. You know, you've got all these factors that play into it. Um, you, you have to be somebody who can handle a lot of different scenarios. And I think that's one of the reasons maybe why we don't have as many athletic trainers in the world these days is because it takes a special kind of person to be able to be out there and doing those things. And so I'll echo what Justin said before, but we just appreciate everything that you guys do. And certainly this program here uh, and, the, and the amount of impact that you're making in Duval County, I think is extraordinary. Um, the one question I do have is, you know, how much of a role does data play in these conversations? When we talk about education with the administrators or you're advocating for an athletic training position in a particular school, you know, counting number of ankles taped and the preventative services and the rehab, you know, logging all of that information and putting a dollar amount. How much of that is, uh, of your time do you guys spend in those kind of data discussions? Well, without putting in a shameless plug for injury free, because we do <laughs> utilize your platform, you know, uh, and that does help us track our time loss injuries is what we use that primarily for in our district right now. Um, but collaboratively, uh, even though I am their supervisor, I like input from them. So I, I, that's the type of manager I am. When I own my own clinics, I, I, I manage your professional. I trust you. You come in. We have the same letters after you have more letters after your name than I do. And so, you know, it's important that we can learn from each other. And so we created uh, some injury data recording spreadsheets. And so each, each athletic trainer at their school, we break it down into the three seasons of the school year. So we have the fall, the winter, and then the spring. And then I have a master list. And then I total all of that up. And we obviously cover all the major things, you know, uh, evaluations, assessments, concussions, any cardiac issues, heat issues. But we also get down into their treatments. You know, so if they're, you know, every time an athlete interacts, we call them encounters. Anytime they have an interaction for a reason with the athletic trainer, we're counting that all the way down to transports, physician referrals, surgeries. So we look through all of that. And with my background working in the clinical setting uh, and, and being that business owner in that area, 
I'm very aware of what copayments are and what cost of physical therapy treatments are. And so I'll take those visit numbers and I'll attach a $50 copay to that and extrapolate that out just to throw a number this past year. Uh, for the year, it was just shy of three quarters of a million dollars in savings across the community by the services, in addition to just being standing on the sideline, right? And watching the game. Yeah. And yeah. so um, I use that data to, and, and again, looking at the number of looking at it, why do we have this many concussions? Is there something that's going on? We can break it. We can drill down from that standpoint. We can go to our, our physicians that we need support from and say, you know, we had this many physician referrals. We had this many surgeries. I don't get into the specifics of which doctors or which conditions with that, but it allows that, that generic number allows me a little bit of, you know, ability to market it to everybody. Um, and then again, with the, the administrators, athletic, uh, Ms. Tammy Talley, our district athletic director, who I work very closely with, uh, our assistant superintendent, regional chief over, over high schools. We present it, I present it to both of them. The athletic directors hear those numbers, you know, and I can also say that's time loss savings as well, because we can get those kids yeah. seen quicker. We can get those kids back on the field, back in the classroom, and then back on the field if it's a concussion situation. So very, uh, very important that we get that data. And uh, we're still we're still improving on that. Um, I know the dashboard that's a part of the platform that we use is, is very helpful. Uh, but you mentioned earlier, uh, you know, the district can't afford the system. So one of our community partners, we have a version of the system and it's not the Cadillac, but we, we make it work the best we can this time for that. So, uh, yeah. and then, so that's, that's what we try, you know, it's our best effort to do that and get, get the accurate numbers uh, so that we can show our value, return on investment for the district and, uh, and how important the roles that they play are. Yeah, that's great. Hi. My name is Charlie Wund, and I'm the CEO and founder of the Agency for Student Health Research. When I started the company over a decade ago, I aimed to help reduce injuries within youth sports. Since then, InjureFree was created as a risk management software platform and has grown to become one of the leading injury reporting platforms used by thousands of athletic organizations and schools nationwide. Our expansive education library and reporting technology provides the tools administrators need to take the pain out of risk management. As a former high school athletic director and youth sports organizer, I understand the regulatory compliance requirements and need for individual accountability. Our goal is to provide a service that does better than checking the box. For more information or to schedule a demo, please visit www.injurefree.com. That's www.injurefree.com. Well, Jerry, we appreciate everything that you've uh, that you're doing. We appreciate you taking your time. We always like to wrap up with a question um, that you know we get all, all kinds of crazy different answers. But if you could change one thing in the world right now by snapping your fingers, and we, we try to focus that in and around sports safety, but you know what would that one thing be for you uh, in your field and what you're hoping to accomplish? Usually, I have an answer right off top of my head that was one that's don't a, worry that's, 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 that's typically the answer one. we get but, right there yeah <laughs> so no worries <laughs> you know if i if i could snap my fingers it would it would be you know that uh the athletic training profession would get the respect 
on a regular basis that it deserves uh, and, and the trust from the community in which we serve. Because a lot of times we are questioned on all our, what our motives are. So yeah, that would be it. Just, you know, snap it and, you know, they, they trust us. And, and well, you know, we're working on that 50 out of 50 states here in California. I'll tell you, good. we are uh, we, we are pretty, uh, pretty embarrassed about all that. So we're doing what we can this year. We've got some new stuff passing. We're hoping to get there as a step towards respect. I also think that in today's culture, we see a lot of referee abuse. I think yes. in some ways, athletic trainers are seen as this ancillary, not part of the community. I can yell at them and they're, you know, kind of an, a, a position um, and so I think there's a lot of that that trickles into the the culture around sports today. Um, but we respect you. We respect all our athletic trainers. Uh, like Justin said, you know, I, growing up and playing sports in college, I spent more time in the athletic training room I did probably than my classrooms. Um, but it, it's a been a big, big part of our lives. So we love you. We appreciate you guys what you do down there. We uh, we look forward to continue working with you throughout the years towards these uh, towards these ends. So thanks for everything. Thank Gary. you both for this opportunity. Appreciate it. We would like to thank you all for listening to today's episode of the Safety Goals Podcast, presented by Injury I'm your host, Justin Torres, and a big thanks to our special guest. And also, thanks to my co-host, Charlie Wund. To listen to other episodes of the Safety Goals Podcast, check us out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.